Uh, this year has been a rough year, hey, for Australia, for our country. Uh, we saw bushfires ravage our country. Uh, early on, we saw flooding happen in, in places. And as already mentioned, we saw in this last week another tragedy. Our supermarket shelves were ravaged and chaos ensued and people panicked and all the toilet paper was bought. I don't know if you saw on the news in the last couple of days about uh, what happened in that Woolworth supermarket in Sydney. A few women were, were fighting. I think they're going to court now for that. Uh, I was going to show you the clip, but out of respect for them, I didn't uh, I feel like it wasn't right to do so. Um, but it was pretty tragic. Like they were fully fighting and screaming in the middle of a Woolworths over a packet of toilet paper. Uh, this uh, earlier in the week, I don't know if you saw in the news as well, we had a truck on fire in Brisbane. And that truck had lost precious cargo loads of toilet paper. Everyone was commenting, saying, this is tragic. We've lost all this toilet paper. There are memes going around on Facebook circulating about toilet paper and hashtag toilet paper again and all this other stuff that's going on. It's crazy, isn't it? Uh, I, I never thought this would happen. Uh, I've got friends posting up pictures about their victories, that they've got this, they've secured a 12-pack of three-ply toilet paper and they're commenting, you know, they're making captions like, hey everyone, I've got a pack of toilet paper, hooray for me. I'll never underappreciate you again, toilet paper. And it's crazy, I mean, all this panic buying really is, 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 is insane. And, it, and it's funny, we laugh about it, but I know some of you are stocking up. I know some of you have come to my house these last couple of days and taken some from my stash. But it's really speaking into a deeper issue, isn't it, in our society? It's funny because we, we watch our Netflix series about zombie apocalypses and how completely absurd it would be to, to stock up and bunker down. It's never going to happen. We won't ever need to hoard toilet paper and canned food. But in this past month, with this new virus, we're starting to really question how secure we really are. I mean, words like pandemic and quarantine and, and just the amount of fear in the media is causing a lot of distress, isn't it? I was reading an article by our friend, um, Pastor Stephen McAlpine, who was here last year. He spoke about how with this whole hashtag toilet paper gate, it's really revealing of our confidence in the West. He writes, our confidence in the West is in fact a thin veneer. Our confidence has been completely untested by any major traumatic event. And the lack of toilet paper or the presence of coronavirus is testing it. And I think that's totally interesting because what we're seeing is how this panic buying of, of toilet paper is revealing what's beneath the surface of our confident, our, our well-educated, our laid-back culture here in Australia. You know, overseas, people think of Australia as really laid-back, you know, calm, cool country. But now we're, we're the laughingstock of the world. We're, we're, losing, uh, we're losing it over, over toilet paper. People are fighting, and, and, and there's videos going viral about people fighting over it. And so I, I really think, I really resonated with this article that, that Steve, Steve wrote for us. Our confidence in the West is a thin veneer. And we, as we walk down the empty aisles of our supermarkets, we all feel that nudge of worry too, don't we? We, we see others holding onto those precious packets of toilet paper, and you think, man, I need to secure mine as well. What am I going to do if, the, if the, the apocalypse really does come? What if we really do run out of toilet paper? I need to go to Mikey's house. You know, and, and it's really defining of our humanity, isn't it? Under the surface of that thin veneer of confidence is not only our herd mentality, but our panic and anxiety with what the future holds for us. We don't know what tomorrow brings. Worry and fear grips us. It leads us to do things like buy all the toilet paper, buy all the pasta, buy all the tinned food, like it's the end of the world. Where will we find a confidence for our future amidst the worry and fear in our world? 
And last week we saw Jesus in chapter 13, right? Where he's, he's, he's washing feet and he's still here in chapter 14. He's still here with the disciples in this upper room discourse that we know these, these few chapters as. And he's, he, he wants to comfort his disciples because he knows where he's going. These are his last hours with them. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. John chapter 14. I'm just going to read a few verses. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Remember, Jesus is on his way to his death. He knows it. His disciples don't, but he's with them. And he's having Passover with them. So he's having a meal with them, essentially. And he has eternity on the horizon, right? During your last hours of your life, you would have eternity on your mind, wouldn't you? You know you're going to your death. You're not thinking about the, 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 the recent home loan rate cuts. You're not thinking about watching the next episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You're thinking about what's next after death for you. Where will I spend eternity? Jesus wants his disciples to know we don't need to fear what is to come. We don't need to let the anxieties of life paralyze us. Jesus will be the forerunner for us. He says he'll go ahead of us. He'll prepare a room for us in God's house. You see, he's speaking to his disciples, so they believe in God already. He says, if you believe in God, believe also in me. I'm the one who's going to bring you home. I'm going to bring you into this place which we know as heaven. And you know, in the Bible, it talks about heaven in different ways. We, we, we often hear it as a, it's a, like a city or a garden. Here he says it's a home. And he's emphasizing something for us, that we get to be with the Father, in his home. It's, it's really relational language, isn't it? We're not only invited, we're not only accepted, but we have a reservation prepared for us to be with him. He's welcoming, welcoming us into the Father's house. We've been adopted into a new family. And you see the people around you right now, they're your, your brothers and sisters in Christ. God is our Father. Jesus is our, is our big brother. And Jesus comes to bring us home. I've come from the Father. I'm going to take you home. Thomas is confused. He says, how will we know the way? How will we know the way to where you're going? I don't know if you've ever asked those questions. You can't ask Siri. She doesn't know the way. Google Maps won't tell you. I tried it this afternoon. It took, us, it took me to cafes and restaurants. Jesus says, I'm the way. I am the truth. I'm the life. But what does that even mean? Many of you have heard that before, haven't you? You've been in church long enough, so you've heard that, that phrase before, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Well, he's saying it's through me and him alone. Through him alone, we'll find our way to God. Through him, we'll reach heaven. Through him, we'll have eternal life. Uh, in chapter 11, which we, we probably heard last year, he already said that he's the resurrection and the life. And for us living on this side of the cross in 2020, we have read it in our Bibles. We've heard the Easter story, haven't we? Jesus died on the cross. He was raised again three days later. So you and I could share in the resurrection. So you and I could be led home by Jesus who paves the way. He's the truth. He's the way. He's the one who gives us life. Now at this moment, right, Jesus is speaking really into the heart of humanity. 
Don't we all want eternity? We do often look for it here on earth, so we hustle hard, we strive for luxury and wealth and security in our, in our things, in our relationships, in our popularity, yet we never really grasp hold of it, do we? We think we don't want to age, we hate the idea of getting old, so we get our aging serums and we put that on in the 10-step routine every night. We want to be young forever, yet experience tells us we don't know what tomorrow brings. Experience tells us we're going to face death one day, no matter who you are no matter where you've been born, I think deep down every human being has questioned eternity. Many of us, we want a type of paradise. Many of us, we don't want to feel death. We don't want to face death. But Jesus says, I'm going to be the way to God. And this is important, isn't it? And this is so, I think this is really fascinating too. Often we think heaven is a type of Elysium, like an ethereal, ethereal, is that the word? Ethereal existence, where we just float around like Casper, the ghost and we're released from the pain and the suffering of this world. Some sort of, some sort of paradise oasis where you can just relax, sip on mojitos, and all, all your friends are there. You're partying it up like it's 99. Some sort of nirvana of sorts, an elevated, almost God-like spiritual experience. Yet the Christian faith says something quite different. You won't become a god or anything like that. What you see, what you see here is, is what makes heaven heaven is you get to be in the presence of God. You get to be in the presence of God the Father in his house. You get to be with Jesus. You know, that, should, that, should, uh, that should give you a new idea of what heaven looks like. You know, and I know, sadly, people don't want God. They want a heaven without God, which simply doesn't exist, and it isn't a heaven at all. You hear me out. If, the God, if God is the creator and, and he's the source of, of all good things, if he's a source of love and kindness and joy and peace and freedom, heaven must be a place where God is. Heaven can't be heaven without the presence of God. And the greatest thing we can anticipate is to be in the presence of, of greatness himself. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Through him and him alone, you'll be able to enter into God's presence. Uh, in the words of, of Pastor John Piper in the US, he says, God is the gospel. Have you ever thought about that? The good news, the gospel, the good news is we get to have God. And I get it. To some, this sounds really controversial. To some, it's even offensive. Jesus is the only way to heaven? Mikey, we live in a postmodern world. Truth is relative. Christianity seems so narrow-minded with our exclusive truth. Jesus is the only way to life? No thanks. I'd rather think all roads lead to heaven. That sounds a lot nicer. But there's a couple of things happening with that. I think there's a, a potential problems with that. When we say that, we, we're defining our own heaven, aren't we? We're defining heaven without God. But I think secondly, we're making statements like, when we make statements like that, we're showing that we're creating our own exclusive truth, aren't we? That you need to agree with me. All roads lead to heaven. That truth is so much more important than your truth. Do you see the problem with that? It's another exclusive truth that's being created. It, it really, all it, ha all it is, is, is a widespread opinion of our society in our postmodern world, relative truth. But is relative truth really truth at all? In the same way, if you're sick and you go to the, your doctor and he's diagnosed you with symptoms and he goes, hey, you're sick. You can't respond to the doctor, hey, doc, look, that's your truth. <laughs> I have my truth, you have yours. But it doesn't actually take away the truth, does it? You're still sick. Truth is reality. And we have a God who created our world 
entered into human history in the form of Jesus. Jesus divine, who isn't limited or confined by human boundaries or, or thought or philosophy. He sees truth outside of the relative human perspective. And this, this son of God, he steps into our world and he comforts his disciples. He comforts you and I. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Don't be troubled. I'm going to prepare a room for you in my father's house. And we'll hear from others. There are many ways to get to heaven. Follow these set of rules. Here, these are your moral obligations. Here's the, here's the eightfold path. Be kind to the universe, and the universe will be kind to you. And I can understand that Christianity is given this label of narrow-mindedness, you know, exclusive truths, and it turns people off. I get that. But you see, while all other faiths or religions or new age spirituality tells you to do all these things, there's nothing actually unique. But most importantly, nothing actually secure about them. You'll never know if you've done enough. You'll never know if you're good enough or have followed the rules enough. The Christian faith has an exclusive truth, yes. Because while we want to be good people, we have to admit first that we're not. That we're not good by God's standards of holiness. That no one is perfect. And the standard of good will always be different from person to person. But from God's perspective, we need someone who is perfectly good. We need someone who is perfectly good to represent humanity and to be our substitute. This is a truth that we stand by. It is only through Jesus the way, the truth, and life. Only through his perfect life, his righteousness, putting our confidence in him, that we can have that security, that we can have the salvation, and a room reserved for us in the Father's house. Naturally, your next question is this. Okay, well, just show us the Father. Show us the Father, that'll be enough. You know, we'll be able, be able to put our confidence in you. And that's what Philip asked in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father, that will be enough for us. And what Jesus does for the next six verses, he's explaining that they've seen the Father already, right? We read it. The Father is in him. He's in the Father, all that stuff. This is a really important teaching point, though. He needs the disciples to hear this because we're seeing how the triune God exists. You know, if you've been around in Christian circles, you'll hear about the triune God, the Trinity. It doesn't come up in the Bible, but all these references in the Scriptures point us to the fact that God does exist in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus explains, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. It's Jesus saying he's a reflection of God. Yeah, sure, he comes as a human baby, but he comes divine as well. When we believe in Jesus, we believe in the Father. We believe in his work, his speech. It's the words the Father gives him to speak. Paul writes for us in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So let's stop for a minute. Let's consider who and how we should think of God the Father. Because if the words of Jesus are true, we've got to actually rethink our whole image of God, don't we? At least the stereotype. I don't know if you've, you imagine God in your heads, like if you guys are people who, who can think with images in your head, some, some don't. But, you know, Hollywood and, and cartoons and statues, even great Renaissance art, they would depict God as what? As an old man, right? An old man with a long beard. I'm, I'm thinking Michelangelo's, um, what's that artwork called? Where the finger's touching. No one knows it. We're so cultured here. Um, you, know, we're, that's, you know, that's how Hollywood depicts God, as an old man with a long beard. Who's, but is that really true? I mean, we've got to think about this. God who's outside of time, does he age like humans age? How can he be an old man? If we want to picture Jesus or God, we should picture Jesus. He is the one who we should look to if we want to know the Father. 
But more importantly, it's not even about the image of God because we can't make up an image of God. We don't know what God looks like. What we do need to see, though, is the work of Jesus. When we see the work of Jesus, we see what God is like. See, I know God. I know what God looks like because I know that God is a God of humble compassion and, and service. He's the king, but he's the servant king. He's powerful enough to calm storms and rebuke the waves, but he's gentle and kind with women and children. That's the character of Jesus. That's how I know God. He reflects the character of God the Father. If we know Jesus, we know the Father. I'm not sure how you think of God the Father. I know for many of us it can be, it can be quite difficult, even triggering for some of us. But we do need to speak into the space. We need to, we need to start with a new, new clean slate and start looking at God as he represents himself in the Bible. I, I don't know what kind of family you grew up in, what kind of father you had growing up, what kind of earthly father you had. I know for some it was very difficult growing up. You might have lost your father at a young age. Some others experienced terrible fathers. Some were abusive. Some hurt the family. Some made you feel unsafe in your own home. And it's tragic. And we hear situations like this. We, we heard in the news about Hannah Clark a few weeks ago and her three young children. It breaks my heart. It makes me so angry when I think of how this can be a reality for some in our world that this abuse actually even exists in the church. It's tragic. But we have fathers as well who, who were absent, perhaps. They were present, but they were distant. They weren't really involved with your life. They didn't communicate much. You grew up, you had to be independent from a young age. For men, you had to learn how to shave on your own from watching YouTube. I don't know. We had others here who, who, had, who had fathers who were like tiger dads. They were really strict. They planned out your whole life for you. They were really rigid. You obey their law they've set down. The taskmaster, no relationship. All rules, no relationship. He never said, I love you growing up. He just expected you to listen and obey. Some of us had good fathers. They didn't get too involved. They didn't share their feelings much, but they were there. They worked hard. They cared for the family. They were good. Others had great fathers. They shared their life with you. They, they prayed for you. They forgave you. They showed grace to you. They loved you. Not perfect, but you had a really great relationship with your earthly father. I've noticed in my 20s and my 30s, and, and I've seen it a lot amongst friends, often our experiences leave these father wounds, don't they? I see it with men who are terrified of being a father themselves, or they still haven't grown up not knowing what good fatherhood looks like. Women who don't want kids because they don't want their children to be raised by immature, irresponsible men like their fathers. It's really sad. And I'm not sure what kind of experience or relationship you have with your earthly fathers, but how do you view God the Father? Isn't it common or easier to just project what we see of our earthly fathers onto our heavenly father? Isn't it easier to think, oh, heavenly father, if he's anything like my earthly father, he's no good. I don't want to have a relationship with this guy. I don't want to even be involved with that. I don't even want to go near that. Yet Christ comes into our world and he gives us a greater picture of who this God is. He points us to the greater reality and truth of God the Father. When we meet Jesus, we meet God. If you're afraid of approaching God as Father, can I encourage you after today, pick up your Bibles and read the Scriptures. Read the Gospels. See how Jesus loved the people he met. See how he embraced and he cared for them. See how he showed mercy and grace, because when you meet Jesus, you get to know his character, you'll know the character of God the Father. 
We meet a God who's so loving and kind and gracious. You don't have to settle for our earthly fathers to define what fatherhood looks like. See God the Father who loves. Let his character define what good, a good, good father is. And so Jesus emphasizes this because he's comforting his disciples. If Jesus is in the Father, the Father is in him, then who else's word can we hold on to? He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Our confidence isn't in the words of just some man. It's in the words of the one who does the work of God, the one who is the Son of God, the one who is truly able to prepare a room for us. That's why this is so important, to know that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. The only one who's truly able to give his life as a sacrifice for our sin to redeem us, to pay for our debt and instead give us his righteousness. If he isn't the Son of God, if he isn't divine, then what good is it? He can't take our spiritual debt, can he, before God? He can't take away the sin in our hearts that incurs the wrath of God. He can't die for all of humankind, past, present, and future. Jesus is making a ginormous declaration here. We've got to hold on to this. He is in the Father, and the Father is in him. He is God, and only he is the way, the truth, and the life. And only he can be the one to lead us home. And so you see so far, right? Jesus says you can have confidence in eternity through him, and he's the one who's been sent by the Father. He comes with the authority of God himself. But verse 12, he shifts it a little bit and says this. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. They'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father and I'll do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. If you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and he'll be in you. It's really interesting. Jesus wants his church to follow his commands, to follow his example, to follow in the works he did while on earth. What were those works? Those works were to love people, weren't they? Yeah, to serve people, to show humility and kindness and compassion to the broken, to, to love the poor, the orphan, the widows, the vulnerable, the needy, bring them into the kingdom of God. That was his work. That's what he came for all along. Yes, and we do see Jesus do other work. We see him do miracles, like do calm storms, heal the sick. He raised people from the dead, sure. But the greater works that he calls us to do is to bring people to God. That's where the miracles really happen. To simply, the, the, the commandments, right? To simply love God and love our neighbor. And to do it in humble service and compassion. And to ask for his will to be done in his name. God's work will continue to thrive and flourish in our world. And he says, after I leave you, you won't be alone. I'm going to send you an advocate, a counselor, a helper, the spirit of truth. And he's referring to the Holy Spirit. He's referring to the one who will live in us, who will help us achieve great works of love and compassion and mercy. We can be an instrument of change in the lives of others. We can be vessels of love to the broken because we have the Holy Spirit. You see, while on earth, Jesus was representing God, right? He was the advocate for God. He was the counselor for our souls. Now that he returns to God, he says, I'm going to send you another counselor, another helper, another advocate, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And the ongoing work of the Spirit will be a continuation, essentially, of the work of Jesus. Jesus counsels us via the Spirit. And you see, for John, Jesus is the evidence, right? He's the evidence of truth, the truth about God. In John chapter 1, if you remember, what does he say about Jesus? Jesus is the Word of God. He's God incarnate. And so the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of truth. Why? To communicate the truth about God in Christ. That's what Christ came to do. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, 
to keep revealing to us and to those around us who Jesus is, what he came to accomplish. keeps pointing us to Jesus and his saving work. And that's the truth we need to point others to as well. Father, Spirit, Triune God, it sounds confusing. But consider how the spotlight is on Jesus in all of this. This is why we're, we're Christ-centered here at Providence. We need to be Christ-centered in our understanding of the Bible. The Father sends Christ to save us, Christ's body and blood. His resurrection rescues us. And then Christ sends God's Spirit to be with us, to remind us and point us back to Him, to Christ. We need to be Christ-centered. We can do, continue on doing the work of Christ in this world, proclaiming, living, loving others. To do what? To point them to Christ. To glorify God. There is no greater purpose. There is no greater command Jesus wants of us. And so when he asks us here to keep his commands, he says, I'll be with you. Go and make disciples of all nations, he says at the end of Matthew's gospel. And I will be with you. In, in Acts, when you start off, you see the disciples with the power of who? The Holy Spirit with them. Proclaiming truth. Preaching it. Living it out. And you see them change so, so mightily. There's such a mighty transformation in their lives. If you've read the Gospels and Acts, you see that the disciples have completely changed. They've got this rock-steady confidence in God as they see God at work in their lives and the lives of those around them. It's, it's actually quite fascinating. The Acts of the Disciples in the Bible where the, where the church multiplies, people are being saved, it really points us back to the same thing, the confidence we can have that Jesus is bringing his people home. See, there's a promise of heaven being led home to the Father by God's Spirit who lives in us. And through the Spirit, we're able to do great works of love and grace that bring the gospel to others. And with the gospel, we, we too bring assurance and the confidence of Christ and salvation to people's hearts. The same faith and trust and confidence we have in that eternity, it's shared with others. Isn't that so good? Uh, friends, our hearts don't need to be troubled by the worries and fears that we face in this world. We don't need to, to, to lose our minds over the coronavirus or, or not having enough toilet paper. Use your socks. You see, you and I who have put our faith in Christ, we're destined for another world. While there are days, right, where anxiety might get the better of us, days where worry and fear of sickness and death creep up to our doorstep, we can also look to Jesus. And we can let the peace of Christ settle our hearts. Eternity awaits. And while some will say, follow a bunch of rules or paths to get to heaven, Jesus says, there's only one way to be in his presence for eternity. What does God require of us? To have faith in Jesus. To put your full trust in him. The work on the cross has been completed. It's been done. We don't have to earn acceptance. We're already accepted. Will we then in our faith surrender our lives before him? In a repentance and obedience, Jesus makes a home for us and is with us. And with that confidence comes divine peace. If you still have your Bibles open, John 14, further down 25, I'm going to read this to you. Just to finish up here. All this I have spoken while still with you, Jesus says. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. I want to finish with this short prose that Heidi wrote. She shared it on her blog. It's, it's true that in our West, our confidence is a thin veneer. When our confidence is tested and has no footing and panic and anxiety set in like we've seen this last week, 
Where will we find peace and reassurance for our troubled hearts? This prose that Hardy wrote is, is titled Be Still. Let me read it to you. To the perpetually exhausted, the perfectionists paralyzed by indecision, to soulless seekers and ears haunted by midnight worry, to discouraged overachievers, obsessive planners, controlling hearts, and the hopelessly insecure. The sun will rise and set today without your help. God's providence will prevail in spite of human plans. No matter your circumstances, God has secured for you an ending without ashes. So why are you, a creature of dust, holding the world on your feeble shoulders? Why do you burden yourself with sovereignty when the throne of grace awaits your coming? Be still, for God hears you in silence, is with you in solitude, and has walked before you into realms unknown. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can have confidence, that we can have an assurance in Christ, that Christ's work on the cross, his death and his resurrection has secured for us a room in your house, that he has gone and prepared it for us, and he will lead us home. And I pray for us here, Lord, who, some of us here who still don't know Jesus, and I pray that they will want to find out more about who you are, that they'll want to investigate uh, who God the Father is and, and the, Jesus, the Son, and the Spirit, that they'll want to know about where they can find eternity. I pray for us here, Lord, who, who might have been Christians for a while, have been in church for a while. I pray that you'll help us, Lord, to, to lay all our causes before the cross, that you'll help us to live a life of repentance and obedience, surrendering it all before you, knowing that you are a God who cares for us, a God who's loved us, and shown us that love at the cross. And so I pray, Lord, amidst, amidst all the worry and the fear and the anxiety that our world is facing today, I pray us as a church will be a beacon of hope, that we'll be able to remind those or teach those around us the goodness and the greatness of who Jesus is and the ultimate hope that we have in him, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that through him we get to be in your presence forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.